Well, I have sort of a chicken and egg question for you this morning. You know, you know the chicken and egg question, which came first, the chicken or the egg. There actually is an answer to that question. I don't know why people are so confused about it. Uh, but they tend to get that way, and people might get confused about this. I'm not sure. But in the church, which comes first? What we believe or what we do? Which comes first, what we believe or what we do? I would submit that before any local church does something, they must first believe something. That because God brings us to an understanding, a knowledge of Him, we then do things. We then live as His people. What we've been learning from Paul in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 is what the church is to believe. He has been teaching us mysteries long hidden but now revealed in Christ, truths we did not know before but now we do, and we believe them be, to be true because they come from the apostle who was appointed by Christ by the will of God. And so we're receiving in the New Testament the very words of God. And so we have truth to live by. We know what we should believe. He's revealed these things so that we can now, knowing them, act upon them. That's why he prayed for the church at the end of chapter 1, at the end of chapter 3, that we would understand these truths and grow in our real relationship with Christ. He said that they may know him. And then he prayed that they would be strengthened for the task of being Christ's church by growing in maturity of faith. So there are things that we know and learn and then things that we put into practice. He says that, he puts it this way, that we would be filled with God. And with Christ, that's, that's the maturity aspect. That the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is actually to be filled with Christ himself, with God himself. That's what he's taught us and prayed for in the first three chapters. So now in chapter 4 and to the rest of the letter, in chapter 4 Paul begins to instruct us in what we're to be and to do as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before the church does anything else, she must first be what God has made her to be. And we are to be His glorious inheritance, a redeemed people, holy and blameless, His prized possession. Each and every one of those descriptors you know came from Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. That's what we're to be. That is our calling to a worthy life, which is what Paul is talking about this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. Read with me these first six verses, not out loud like we did earlier, just read with me. Read along as I read. This is the word of God. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. We were just a few moments ago reading doctrinal statements, confessions on particular particular doctrines, and, and Paul has... Paul has uh, 
has declared truths of the faith. Paul has enacted a, a confession of the faith in these very verses that we have. If you would, uh, as you follow along in Scripture, also follow along in your sermon notes, and you'll find this theme for the sermon this morning. Having been made one body in Christ, the church is to maintain that unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace according to the glorious plan of God to unite all things in Christ. So first Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the call of God. And Paul, again, identifies himself as a prisoner for Christ, which reminds us of a few things. We're encouraged to remember that even though it looks like Paul is a prisoner of Rome, because he's chained to a Roman guard in Rome, he is actually a prisoner of the Lord. He's bound to Jesus, which reminds us of his rightful authority over us, as we read in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul says, it's, it's me, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, which means that Paul's urging comes to us not from Paul, but through Paul, from God. So pay attention. We are also blessed that Paul has been given a stewardship of the gospel and has been charged to make known to us God's plan for his church. We've been, we've been taken behind the curtain and shown what the plan is. That's what Paul did in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Which is what the therefore is there for, right? Paul says, I'm going, to t- I'm going to start talking now, and what I'm saying is based on everything that I said before. Therefore, understanding all of these things in chapters 1, 2, and 3, listen to me now. Based on the mystery of Christ that Paul taught in chapters 1, 2, and 3, based on his confidence that God will answer his prayers for us, that we would know and understand these things, that God would enlighten our hearts to understand his calling of us and to actually know him, his prayer that God would strengthen us in the inner man, that together we would, now, we would know the love of Christ and mature in the faith to be like him. Based on all of that, the Apostle Paul now urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Everything in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is the content of this calling, broadly, that we have. And everything that follows in chapters 4 through 6 is Paul's instructions for walking out our calling in real life together. If the letter to the Ephesians was published as a newspaper, or published in a newspaper, it could be published in two articles, with two big headings. Have you read a paper, newspaper, recently? (laughs) Anybody? (laughs) So a real paper newspaper, like in the good old days, back in the day, uh, you know, there would be there would be a big bold heading to kind of tell you what this article is about, and then the article would flow after that. And the two key subheadings, if Paul's letter were put in a in a newspaper, would be the blessings of salvation. It's Ephesians chapter one, verse three, that we're made alive in Christ and everything that flows through that. And then, the chapter 4 heading, the one new man brought near in Christ. And then, the church's participation in God, his great plan to unite the entire cosmos in Christ, the mystery that's been made known to us. All of those things would be under one big heading, that we're 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 to bless God who has blessed us. And then the second heading would be, for chapters 4 through 6, walk in a manner worthy. In Christ, we have a new identity. 
Not just that we have been made alive, but that we have been brought near together, and together we have a purpose in the plan of God. Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You might have noted that there's some redundant language there. The calling to which you have been called. We might expect Paul to call us to walk worthy of the gospel. We might expect Paul to say, walk in a manner worthy of God. Walk in a manner worthy of Christ. And he does that in other letters, doesn't he? But instead, here he urges us to walk worthy of the calling. In fact, he emphasizes it with this redundant phrase, the calling with which you have been called. That that repetition is meant to emphasize the importance of this call. We're supposed to recognize this call and its impact on us because it's a profound calling. God has called us to be in a relationship with him by his electing love. And includes our, our, uh, the calling includes our Father's predetermination to adopt us as his children. God has called us to receive every spiritual blessing in Christ. Redemption from bondage to sin, participation with Christ in the resurrection and exaltation, newness of life and nearness to God. All of those things. And particularly, what Paul's moving forward, God has called us Gentiles into one body. This is the mystery revealed. And he has called this one body now to make known the gospel of God's grace to sinners. Our response to that call is twofold. One, when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, we believed in him and we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's chapter 1, verse 13. And, secondly, we respond by living a life of obedience and service to God. Together in light of his revealed plan and purpose for his church. God has not called us to a private relationship with him. No. He has called us to a new life in a community with other believers. Our calling is for us together to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, separated from God and his people. By the blood of Christ, we have been made alive and brought near. And he is building us together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. All of this he's taught us. All of this he is what he's calling to. Our calling, our identity, who we are, is characterized by unity. We are united with God. We are united with one another in Christ by His Spirit. That is our calling. And that is what we've been given. And Paul's first instruction is for us to then maintain that unity. Look at what he says in verses 2 and 3 once again. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, this is our call to maintain this unity. He says, walk with humility and gentleness. Few things are more damaging to unity in the body than pride and arrogance. God has always opposed the proud. He said, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. 
Isaiah 66, 2. The apostle Peter also instructed the church saying, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, and he's alluding to Proverbs 11. See, pride damages unity because it looks to itself first. Humility looks upon others first. Humility fosters unity. It's good soil for unity to grow in. Jesus urged his disciples, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Matthew chapter 11. Gentleness is a virtue similar to humility. They work really well together. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek and gentle are actually the same Greek word. But I think gentle is the better translation. Um, It's not that meek isn't appropriate. It's just that meek hasn't aged well in our culture. In our day, it commonly connotes weakness. Gentleness does not imply weakness, but rather a self-controlled and tempered spirit. We have the strength of self-control. We have the strength to temper our spirit. And gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Galatians 5, 22. And gentleness, you may not have noticed this, is precious to God. What's precious to God? Gentleness is one thing. Peter again instructs the church saying, do not uh, let your adorning be external, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Hmm. It's not hard to guess why, is it? Because unity flourishes among people who are humble in heart and gentle in spirit toward one another. They work well. They function well for unity. You know this. You know this even as you experience this. Right? If it was never explained to you, you would know it when you lived it. People who are humble before God are humble before you also. They're humble people. And people who have experienced the gentleness of Christ are gentle to you also. You see, this is the real stuff of unity. Paul says, walk in patience, bearing with one another in love. Humility and gentleness are, they're kind of the forerunners. They're in place first to to patience and then forbearance. You know, a survey of the Old Testament reveals the patience of God towards his people. God is repeatedly shown to be long-suffering and slow to anger with his people. We should be glad for that. God even revealed himself in this way to Moses. Remember, he said to Moses, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus chapter 34. And God displays his patience even towards sinful people. Paul asks sinners, 
Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You know, before we as believers said yes to the call of God and believed in Christ and repented of our sin, we all presumed upon God's patience. Here we are, sinning against him, day after day. He's patient with us, patient with us, and we're just presuming that he's going to be patient the next day and the next day and forever. If anyone here has not said yes to the call of God, you may not realize it, but you too are presuming upon God's patience with you in your sin. You may be thinking, as many do, that God's not going to punish you for your pride and your arrogance against Him. God's not going to punish you for loving yourself more than you love God who created you and gave you life. But do not mistake His patience for a pardon. You will not be pardoned for your sins against Him apart from believing in Jesus Christ, apart from trusting in Christ's perfect righteousness, apart from relying upon Christ's sin-atoning death on the cross, apart from depending upon his life-giving resurrection from the grave. The apostle Peter is he's pleading with you this morning when he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the judgment of the Lord will come. Patience is never permanent. The nature of patience is that it's a temporary stopgap measure. The Lord's patience will give way to his right and just condemnation of sinners. But also to the glorification of his saints who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm appealing to you this morning to see the Lord's patience with you up until this time as the very reason why you should turn to him in repentance right now. He's been patient for this moment that you would hear his call to be made alive in Christ by his grace and through faith and that you might have peace with God and with his people forever. And he will gladly welcome you into his family. He has promised us. Brothers and sisters, we have experienced the patience and forbearance of God, and he is calling us to emulate the Father. That's what Paul's telling us to do. Patience is also a fruit of the Spirit. And patience is a defining characteristic of God's love. So how do we carry out patience in our relationships with the church? By bearing with one another. By bearing with one another. What does that mean? Well, it means to put up with. It means to put up with people. I mean, which is a little confusing. Could, what could there possibly be about me that you would feel you have to put up with? Such a lovely group here this morning. What wonderful people gathered here this morning. What could there possibly be about you that someone else would have to put up with? It's confounding, isn't it? 
How long am I to bear with you? Jesus said to his own disciples in Matthew chapter 17. You see, we, we all have faults. We all have, if you're not sure, just ask. Ask the person sitting next to you. We all have quirks. Ways we talk, things we say, how we laugh, how we dress, how we comb our hair, our, our common reaction to certain situations, our, our natural optimism or our natural pessimism. These are things that we do that, even if they're not sin, they just get on people's nerves. They could be reasons, matters for disunity. But rather than dismiss one another or avoid one another, or condemn one another for these things, for the sake of unity, we overlook them. We put up with them, because unity matters more. We put up with one another. We forbear one another. And that goes a long way in preserving our unity with one another. And we don't put up with one another in bitterness or resentment. Ugh, I'm putting up with him, but I sure don't like it. No. We bear with one another in love. We bear with one another in love. The same love with which God has loved us, which is a patient and a forbearing love, is the love with which we now love one another. We have this command from Jesus. Love one another as I have loved you, John 15, 12. And Jesus' love is patient and kind, does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude. Jesus' love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentment. Jesus' love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus' love bears all things, believes all things, Hopes all things, endures all things. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So when we are humble and gentle, when we exercise patience and forbearance, we love one another as Christ has loved us. And because Christ, who is humble and gentle, has loved us with patience and forbearance, we can love one another in these same ways. And if we will, we will also maintain unity in the church. Because Christ loves with a unity-maintaining love. And Paul urges us then to be eager to do so. What do you find yourself eager in? Excited about? Paul says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We did not create the unity in the church. But we can quickly and easily wreck it. It is God who made us alive and brought us near. It is Christ who is our peace and who has made us one new man in himself. It is the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, the temple of God, the church. We have been given the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This unity is precious because it was purchased by nothing less than the blood of Christ, Paul tells us. And so Paul urges us not to squander it away, not to be careless with it or mishandle it 
but to be eager to maintain it. Unity and peace are two main accomplishments of the blood of Christ in chapter 2 of Ephesians. And the Holy Spirit indwells the church, giving us confident access to the Father in chapter 3 of Ephesians. The peace that Christ has given is like a rope that ties us all together, that binds us together, no matter our differences, into a unified whole. In fact, the word translated bond is the same word translated prisoner back in verse 1. So Paul, who is bound to Christ, is talking to the church, who is also bound to Christ, who is our peace. In order for the church, Jew and Gentile, co-members, at peace in Christ to display the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, that's our purpose, one of them, we have to keep this peace that's been given to us. To, to show, to reflect the wisdom of God, that he has brought peace in the one new man of these two separate warring people. Without re-preaching all of chapters 1, 2, and 3, how can Paul emphasize God's call for us to maintain this peace in the church? How can he instill this eagerness in believers in the church? Well, he simply confesses what is true. He makes seven doctrinal statements of oneness that provide the basis for unity in the church. Beginning in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One, 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 one. Is there any tunis in Paul's confession of the unity in the church? No, it's all oneness. Each confessional statement is both a declaration and an exhortation. Each one characterizes the unity of the church that God has created, and each one exhorts us to be eager to maintain that characteristic of unity. So he says one body, one spirit, one hope. Well, the one body is the church. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross. And it is the Spirit who unites believers into this one body. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one Spirit. That's what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And the one body leads Paul to the one Spirit who now fills the church. Back in chapter 2 and verse 22, Paul wrote, In Christ you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. And through Christ we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Chapter 2 verse 18. And when we believe the gospel, in chapter 1 verse 13, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the seal of God's ownership on our hearts. He is the down payment and the guarantee of our hope. 
The one body is the new covenant temple in which God dwells with his people by the Holy Spirit, one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. Now in that phrase, Paul again is emphasizing our calling as the basis for this unity. This is the hope of the church that Paul prayed for us to know. In chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, he prayed, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. Because once we were without hope, Paul said. Because God has graciously reached down and brought us to himself, we now have hope. And we must be eager to maintain the unity in the church because one body filled with one spirit, according to the one hope of God's calling, is God's plan for us. Here's the purpose of God. Paul goes on to say, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Well, Jesus is obviously the one Lord. The early church affirmed that Jesus is the Lord on the basis of his resurrection and exaltation. And Paul revealed the mystery of Jesus' lordship back in chapter 1. God has lavished his grace upon us in wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven, things on earth. As the church, we experience the lordship of Christ, according to chapter 1, verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is our one Lord, and we are his one body. This is the one faith. The word faith used here, uh, is used here to mean the, the common set of Christian beliefs. It's, it's the Christian faith. Uh, it's, it's the way Jude expresses it. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. At the core of the Christian faith is Christ Jesus our Lord, the object of our faith. And when a sinner comes to saving faith in Jesus, he makes a public profession of Christian faith, which leads Paul to the one baptism. The initiatory ordinance of believers' baptism by immersion in water symbolizes our spiritual union in Christ. Paul describes it in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So this one baptism is a confession of the one faith in our one Lord who unites us all. And then Paul caps it off with one God and Father of all. The series of confessions ends with a declaration of belief in the one true and living God. Paul stresses God's sovereignty and power and presence. God has come near to poor sinners and has become our Father. Jesus even teaches us, saying, Our Father who is art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Pray this way. So we confess with Paul what is true. That we are one family. With one Father. United in Christ. This peace and unity has been given to us. And we have been transformed by faith into people who are now eager to maintain that unity. 
the reality and the true experience of our oneness that we share. So how do we go about maintaining that unity? Well, I think it might help, first of all, if we would remember that the unity of the church, the unity of believers for whom he died, the unity of his body is near and dear to Jesus. Just before his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus paid, prayed repeatedly for his disciples that the Father would make them one. In John chapter 17, beginning in verse 10, Jesus prays to the Father, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And again, beginning in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, those before him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I give to them, for what reason? that they may be one, even as we are one. This unity is not just some value add. I go to church, and if I happen to get along with some people, that's, you know, that's all the better. No, it's the very heart of Christ. It's the very work of Christ. It's the very power of Christ's blood that we're united together in one. Unity in the church, our oneness with God and with one another, was the passionate priority of Jesus even as he was on his way to the cross. Jesus has handed his passion for unity in the church to his apostle Paul, and Paul is now exhorting us to maintain this unity which has been lavished on us by the grace of God. By God's grace, we are not being called to create or conjure up unity by ourselves. We couldn't do it. Not for long. Not real unity. We're not pursuing unity for the sake of unity itself. By God's grace, we have been made able to maintain our unity. Because we are united in Christ for the sake of God's glory. And Paul has instructed us in three ways to pursue that unity. First, we need to exercise the Christ-like virtues in verses 2 and 3 that enhance unity. We need to do what we've been exhorted to do and to make every effort. If you're quick to get angry, make every effort to be patient. If you tend to be prideful, even arrogant, make every effort to be humble. If you come off as bossy because you always want your way, make every effort to be gentle toward others. If other people get on your nerves, your last nerve, if you find yourself intolerant of any person in the church, make every effort to bear with them. And not 
as if they are your great cross to put up with, bear with them in love. You know, plain old worldliness. Plain old worldliness drives most of the problems in the church. I remain convinced that nine out of ten problems in the church are really just communication errors. Bad communication. If you add a little pride and a little immaturity to a miscommunication, it just gets worse and worse. People leave churches over hurt feelings a thousand times more often than they do over doctrinal error. And Paul has listed for us the means to maintain unity. So if unity in the church has not been a priority for you, you need to get eager about it. Second, we need to confess our shared commitment to the faith, as Paul does in verses 4 to 6. We read from our statement of faith this morning because we have a statement of common faith. We believe these things together. We read confessions from time to time, like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, because they are declarations of the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. The world rejects the faith. Our culture is working overtime to divide and to make fearful and separate and make angry. And despite promise after promise, there is no peace in this world. The world's quest just to get along is not true unity. True unity is only found in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. True peace is only found in Christ himself. The church, you and me, we are to stand on the Christian faith and not be moved. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Lastly, our unity is based on our calling from God. Our unity is based on our calling from God. Four times in this passage, Paul emphasizes this call. God calls us into a relationship with himself to become part of a people he is gathering to be his very own. The Father is doing this. He's reaching out and he's gathering people to be his very own prized possession. And we are those people. We who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a new identity. We are not who we are. We are now in Christ. We are now the children of God. We are now the people of God. We are now the temple of God being built up and filled with God by the presence of His Holy Spirit. That's who we are. That's our unity. That's our identity. We are God's united people. Christ's body called to keep living in the precious unity that we have in the Holy Spirit by the bond of peace in Christ who is our peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing to us these truths that we might know them and come to understand them and to grow in them. Father, we long to be your 
your church, who reflects your glory. Lord, we long to be the witness of the power of your gospel. And so, Father, help us to do the hard work of being eager and diligent and resolved to maintain the unity that we have been given in Christ. The peace that we have with Christ and with one another. The love that we share together. Father, help us in these ways that we might be useful to you and for your glory. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.